We are starting, though, with something that is going to be happening this weekend. We heard overwhelmingly from British Columbians that they wanted to stop the process of falling back and springing forward. The province has introduced new legislation to make daylight savings time permanent, instead creating a new time zone, Pacific time, but excluding parts of the province observing mountain time. This could be the last time much of the province rolls back the clocks. That was a global news story from 2019. It's uh, That was from the fallback in the fall, but uh, the premier, then premier, John Horgan, also talked about this last year, saying last year might be the last time we spring forward. Not so. We are doing it again this weekend. So we are checking in now with Ralph Mistelberger, a professor and graduate program chair with the Department of Psychology at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Well, thank you for having me. Well, once again, we are going to spring forward this weekend, clocks going ahead by one hour. I know you've talked about this a lot in the past, but what are some of the concerns about us, again, uh, doing this, changing the time and losing that hour? Yeah, it's uh, my least favorite day of of the year. Uh, And basically, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're forcing ourselves to get up one hour earlier than usual relative to... uh, to sunrise and relative to our social clock. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of concerns. One is the immediate effects of changing, and the other is, is a more chronic effect. The, the immediate effect is pretty obvious. Uh, we we uh, potentially get a less, you know, one hour less of sleep. Um, we have to wake up uh, earlier uh, on Monday morning for work. Uh, so we don't feel as rested, and uh, not surprisingly, uh, this is associated with um, uh, you know, changes in, you know, increases in accidents like car accidents, et cetera. Now, that's something that you would that you would expect uh, would be uh, evident only for for a few days, um, uh, but it's generally recognized that um, you know there's general agreement that um, we don't we don't need to do these these changes on an annual basis. Uh, this is, uh, at, at this point, recognized to be unnecessary. So the question then becomes, do we want to stick with permanent daylight savings time in which the sun rises later and sets later relative to our social schedule? Or do we want to um, uh, stick with uh, standard time, uh, which uh, is the time that uh, that, uh, that uh, is associated with, um, which was set according to the position of the sun, in um, you know locally. So where where noon uh, the sun is overhead, uh, that's how the time zones were 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 designated. So so noon is is solar time is when the sun is overhead. Um, and uh, there, there are there are disadvantages to daylight savings time. There are some advantages. There are some appeals. You know, as, as somebody that likes to play golf in the summer, I like having uh, more light later in the day for longer rounds of golf. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's um, some uh, historical evidence that, uh, that um, daylight savings time was actually invented for that very purpose um, um, about 100 years ago. Uh, so so that, that, that's one sort of advantage. You know, you have more light in, in, in the evening, uh, more time to do activities outdoors, which is good. Uh, also, uh, sunset is later relative to the, the evening commute, so it's good to have light during the commute. Um, the disadvantages are that the sun rises later, and so for a significant portion of the year, 
it would mean that you're driving to work when it's dark uh, or you're going to school as a, as, a, as a child going to grade school or high school uh, when it's still dark out. So from November to February in Vancouver, sunrise would be 8 a.m. or later. Um, so what's the big deal with that? The problem with that is that um, our sleep-wake cycle and our entire physiology is regulated by these things called circadian clocks. And we have a master clock in the brain which um, gets information from the retina. And it uses that information to align itself with local time. And uh, we call that process entrainment. And when the clock is entrained to local time, we have a, uh, you know, a, a time of day when we find it easy to fall asleep and a time of day where we would naturally wake up. It's that morning light in humans which is critical for controlling the timing of the clock because the, the human clock wants to drift later. It's an it's a interesting genetic um, characteristic of these circadian clocks, which is that they have a genetically based um, uh, uh, periodicity. So the circadian clock is a 24-hour clock, but it doesn't run at exactly 24 hours. In humans, it runs slightly slower than 24 hours. So what does that mean? It means that if the clock does not have a signal to entrain it to local time, it will drift later and later each day, meaning you would have more and more trouble falling asleep at, let's say, 10 p.m., because your clock would be drifting maybe 15 to 20 minutes or 10 minutes uh, later each day. Hmm. And uh, so how, how, does, how does light uh, prevent this from happening? Well, it, it, it's, it, in the morning is a, a circadian phase of the clock itself when the clock uh, is sensitive to light and it causes the clock to shift forward, offsetting uh, that tendency to drift. And, all, and, and, and this property of clocks is, is shared by every animal on the planet and plants as well uh, that have these circadian clocks. They can all be reset by light. So, so light is critical, and in humans it's light in the morning that's critical. So, so the upshot is that it, the later you see light in the morning, the, the later your circadian clock uh, will align itself with, with our social clock. Um, so if light arises at set, you know, if, if, if sunset, sorry, sunrise is six or seven in the morning, uh, our clock will naturally transition you in, into the waking period uh, at six or seven in the morning. If sunrise is later than that, then our natural wake-up time will be later, uh, and our natural sleep onset time will be later. Which means that for kids and you know for everybody, um, the later the sunrise, the harder it will be to fall asleep in the evening. And the evening light is actually having the opposite effect. It's making the clock want to shift later, not earlier. So, so uh, with a, a later sunset, uh, we're also getting more light in the evening, and our clock is being pushed later. So it's having so so uh, you know a reduced amount of light in the morning and an increased amount of light in the evening. Uh, the net effect is that we become more like night owls. Hmm. And night owls, uh, you know, what they complain about is having to get up early because uh, it makes them sleep deprived because they have a harder time getting to sleep early and so their sleep ends up being truncated. And so over the long term, uh, you end up being kind of chronically sleep restricted and, and there's a lot of concern in you know, modern life that uh, s uh, sleep restriction uh, you know, affects our health. 
and there, there's all, all kinds of epidemiological evidence, that is evidence from large populations of people, um, showing that, um, you know, sleep, uh, inadequate sleep uh, or sleep disorders, um, chronically uh, restricted sleep, you know, is associated with over the long term with, with you know, adverse health outcomes in the areas of, of metabolism, so obesity, uh, in the areas of cardiovascular disease, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, cognitive aging and dementia and even all-cause mortality. So very short, short sleepers, you know, tend not to live as long, long, very, very long sleepers also tend not to. So there's this U-shaped function. There's like a, a, a perfect sleep duration somewhere in the seven to eight hour range right. as far as longevity is concerned. So, so that's, you know, so that's, that's the concern. That's why all of these uh, academic societies, um, you know, the, the experts in sleep and circadian rhythms um, uh, take, have taken a position against uh, permanent daylight savings time in favor of permanent standard time. So if, if, we, if, if, this, if those scientists had control over public policy, uh, this weekend we would not change the clock times. We would stay where we are right now. Right. And, and, that would be, and that would become the, you know, the permanent system. And with all that, that you've been talking about with circadian rhythm and, and how light is so important for us, uh, do you think things have changed as well with the last couple of years? People's schedules have been different. Maybe people haven't been getting up as early because they haven't been commuting or they've stayed up mm-hmm. later for that reason. With the, with the pandemic kind of throwing schedules off anyway, does that make it even more difficult if we still continue changing the clocks? Yeah, you know that's that is interesting. Lifestyle really matters. So for you know, so again, coming back to myself, uh, you know, I'd say I approach, approach retirement age. Um, you know, maybe I don't need to get up early, and and so it doesn't matter when the sun rises. You know, if you have complete control over your own schedule, then you know you, you, there's nothing wrong with being a night owl. You, you, you can be just fine uh, as long as you get you know the right amount of sleep, and so you adjust your schedule you know uh, accordingly. Um, the problem is that if you're living in a world where you have to conform to a social schedule, meaning that you do have to be somewhere in the morning, you know, at a, at a certain time, uh, you know, the, the, that's where that's where the conflict arises. So the biological timing and the social timing become misaligned. Uh, but uh, the, you know, the pandemic is, you know, that was that's an incredible incredible uh, experiment in 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 human um, uh, culture and, and, and biology. Um, you know, a lot of people had very disrupted sleep because they didn't have, you know, they didn't have a, a, the structure anymore in their days. And so many of them were not, you know, they were sleeping later. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I know this from, from you know, our, our studies that we've done with the students, uh, university students. Um, many of them um, stayed up later and got up later. And for some of them, that was fine. But for many of them, they didn't, they didn't actually didn't like that. And, and even though they had more opportunity to sleep, they actually weren't getting more sleep. Uh, so it was making matters worse because of the lack of structure and and the delayed, you know, and the reduced exposure to, to outdoor light. Outdoor light is is, is uh, something that's very important for uh, for humans. Right. And Ralph, we only have a, a couple minutes left. I'm just curious then, and you, you touched on this with uh, if you can adjust your schedule, you can still make sure you get enough sleep. But what, what kind of is the most important thing uh, do you think people can do as they adjust? Because we are going to be turning the clocks uh, springing forward at least once again. What's the most important thing people can do? Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I'll what I'll be doing this weekend is uh, as it happens, I'm, I'll I'll be at Whistler. So that's that's to my advantage because it means I'm gonna I'm gonna get up early, 
I'm going to be outdoors all day. And all of that light, I would hope, is going to adjust my clock so Monday I'll be just fine. Uh, but normally I, I have a hard time with the with the transition. Uh, so, you know, it's all it's all about I would recommend to people on on that day, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, get up, at, you know, get up at, a, at an early hour um, if you can. And, and, and if you get up at your usual time, make sure to get as much outdoor light as you can early in the day. Uh, so if you can get up and go for a walk first thing in the morning on, on Sunday um, that, and, and, you know, and, and you know, take a nice leisurely walk. Hopefully the weather's good, although I think it's going to rain. <laughs> Uh, but but get as much light as you can early in the day because that's that's the light that's going to help your clock uh, you know make the adjustment uh, and and again in the evening uh, do as much as you can to reduce the amount of light uh, indoors you know in the environment uh, because the evening light is 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 having the opposite effect it's going to make you know it wants to push your clock later so it's going to reinforce your your you know your current um, sleep wake uh, schedule. So if you can increase light early in the day and decrease light late in the day and try to and certainly do that on Sunday and do your best to do that uh, for the next few days, next week, um, then, um, you know, that that's your best strategy for moving your clock forward. Uh, and that's the basis of, of adjusting, really. It's all about getting your, your circadian clock aligned with um, with your social clock. All right. Uh, Good advice, Ralph. Mr. Berger, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Great to talk to you about this. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. It is that time of year once again, time to start thinking about taxes. Maybe you are anticipating a refund or maybe there are some questions you have. Well, fear not. Jerry Vitteratos is with us now, National Tax Specialist with ufile.ca. Jerry, thank you so much for making some time. Well, thank you for having me. We wanted to, to talk a bit more with you, as, as we tend to do every year around this time. So let's start with maybe things that are new or maybe things that you're flagging to people that they need to keep in mind when filing. Sure. I mean, uh, for the for the current tax year, I would say what's uh, the, the, the big news or the big changes are essentially some of the benefits that the government has decided to offer under the affordability plan which would be, for example, you have a new Canada dental benefit for any parent who's got a child that's less than 12 years old that has incurred dental fees and they weren't covered under either a government insurance or a private insurance. They can claim now this tax-free uh, benefit, essentially, uh, to help them in paying for, uh, for the, the dental fees of their children. Uh, the other one is also the Canada housing benefit, which is for any low-income renters uh, below, you know, very low thresholds, basically, either, you know, they, they had less than 20,000 income gained or uh, for, for, uh, for an individual and 35,000 for, uh, for a couple, they can get a one-time $500 uh, benefit from the government, which is tax-free, in order to help them to pay uh, for their rent. Uh, beyond that, the only other big measure is what we call immediate expensing for businesses, and it's also for corporations. Uh, basically, you can uh, depreciate 100% of the value of properties that you buy for your business. So, for example, if you bought a vehicle, ordinarily you would only depreciate a certain percentage of that every year as an expense. Now you can fully expense the purchase of your vehicle in the current year. All right. What about for people who maybe are still working from home? I know in the past we've talked about how they streamlined that process as far as if you are working from home, you've made a home office. Is that change still in place? Yes. 
so this year will be the final year when the government is going to offer what's called uh, what's called well we call it usually the simplified method I guess you could say, uh, but it's a flat rate method essentially where as long as the reason that you're working from home is due to COVID and you've worked uh, from home due to COVID for at least four consecutive weeks, then you're getting a two dollar per day deduction on your tax return and deduction meaning similar concept to an RSP contribution meaning that you're reducing the income uh, that you're going to get taxed on. Uh, so the key is though that it has to be for COVID in order to get that uh, what they call you know the simplified or the or the uh, flat rate method. Now, uh, if if for example your employers decide to shut down their office. Uh, then in that case, you could still claim your home office expenses, but now you go under what they call the detailed method, meaning that you need to now list your expenses and hold on to receipts. Interesting. When you say, too, that if you have to, to get the simplified method, that it has to be because of COVID. But I would imagine there might be some uh, interpretation there of if your employer has moved to a hybrid or moved to an at-home model, they could say, couldn't they, that the reason they did that was because of COVID. They can, but that's not that's not enough for you, the employee, to get the, the, the flat rate method. So if your employer has decided as a business decision that they're going to shut down uh, their, their physical office and just have everybody work from their, from their home, now you fall under the regular conditions of, of, uh, of, of home office expenses, which is not a new deduction, by the way. This, is, this has been an existing uh, deduction for many, many years. It's just the, it's the reason as to why you're home. So regardless of what the decision-making is of your employer, for the employee, employee, the, the question is, is it COVID? Yes or no? If it's no, you might be working from home either way, but now you must go to what we call the detailed method. And now you have to list your expenses and you need to keep, you need to keep proof of those expenses. Right. It is a lot more um, detailed, a lot more labor intensive, isn't it? Making sure you've kept everything and being able to claim that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, because because the what's what was nice about the flat rate method is the fact that there was no receipts that you needed to keep, uh, and there was no certificate that your employer had to sign. Essentially, the moment you were there because of COVID, you're just claiming two dollars per workday that you worked at home, and and much much simpler as as an approach. But now, when you go under the detailed method, now you start facing, you know, the CRA red tape, which is first of all, your employer has to sign off confirming through a specific form, which we call the T two thousand two hundred. That you are work that that part of your working contract is to work from home, and then on top of it, you must keep all your receipts. So you know your 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 uh, what's called your heating bill, your electricity bill, uh, your your residential internet. You have to now keep that proof in case you get audited. And is it a formula that you use as well, depending on the square footage of your home office, or as far as can you not also write off the the percentage, say, of your mortgage or your rent uh, of your heat, uh, like you like you said, those things that you're using but now using for the home office? Yes. So some expenses are eligible, some are not. Okay. So the key is, for example, mortgage interest would not be eligible unless you were self-employed. If you're self-employed, you can deduct uh, what's called property taxes. You can deduct uh, you can deduct mortgage interest, and you deduct you could deduct insurance. You can't do that as a salaried employee, unfortunately. Uh, as a salaried employee, the only thing you're allowed as far as housing costs is is the rent. And you're absolutely right. You need to determine basically the square footage of your home office vis-a-vis the square footage of your of your home. And you're only allowed to claim that percentage as as an expense for the deduction. Uh, you mentioned self-employed as well. Uh, is it a different deadline as far as how when you have to file compared to if you're salaried or a, a paid employee or self-employed? Yes, absolutely. So when, if you're if you're not self-employed, the deadline is April 30th ordinarily, but because April 30th falls on a Sunday this year, it'll be May 1st. 
Okay, so that, that's the deadline. For a self-employed individual, the deadline is June 15th, but there's a catch to that deadline. And the catch is that if you owe money, and more often than not, you will owe money uh, if you're self-employed, because remember, when you're self-employed, you're not paying tax ahead of time, right? An employee pays payroll taxes, and that's why we file a tax return. Whatever tax we pay during the year, we're trying to figure out whether we've overpaid, which is a refund, or we've underpaid, which is a balance owing. But for a self-employed individual, they never pay tax at source, so they automatically underpay every year, and they will have a balance owing. So the issue will be that if they, if they have a balance owing, which they will, they have to pay the balance owing by April 30th of the year, same as, as any other employee if they don't want any interest charges. What they avoid is the penalties if they, if they file by June 15th. But the interest starts accumulating as of April 30th. All right. So better to do it earlier if possible. Yes. Well, you're better off doing it at the same deadline. I mean, right. why pay the interest? Uh, the only way you'll know what you owe is if you produce your return. If you wait till June 15th, and like I said, if, if your main source of income is self-employment income, you will owe. You will have a balance owing automatically. Just conceptually, you haven't paid the tax ahead of time. You're paying it now on your tax return. So you will owe money, so you might as well do it by April 30th. Phone lines are open. Joining us now as well is Jerry Vitterato, National Tax Specialist with ufile.ca. We have a lot of calls. Let's see if we can get to everybody. Rob in Abbotsford, go ahead. Oh, hey, Jerry, I've got a question. I have a 20-year-old daughter. We've been saving in her RESP for 20 years. We're finally pulling it out now. We just pulled out $20,000. And I got a T5 uh, from that. Actually, she did. Is that taxable income as well as her scholarships that she's earned? Yes. Yeah, so, so what is taxable? Uh, thank you for the question, uh, uh, first of all. Uh, so what is taxable is essentially any gains or any of the grants that the government gave you in the RESP. So whatever you've put in as cash is non-taxable. So ordinarily, the T5 should only be reflecting the portion uh, that you have as gains or any grants that you collected over the, uh, over the years. And it's only taxable in your daughter's file. It's not taxable to you directly. It's only taxable in your daughter. Okay, so how do you pull out just, uh, 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 say, the? Uh, how do you differentiate between what was gains and what was your original after-tax dollars that you put in? So basically, uh, the way we differentiate is that you would, I don't know if you have the history of it, if you could go to your, uh, if, if you could go to your financial institution and see the history of yeah. it and see how, what amounts you contributed to it, and then from there see what was pulled out, essentially. So that's how you would uh, check it. But like I said, ordinarily, the financial institution should have already done that for you. Uh, the okay. T5 should only be reflecting the taxable amount. All right. Oh, sorry, Rob. Thank you for that question. Appreciate you <clears throat> calling in with that. Let's continue down the line with John and Langley. John, go ahead. Yes, good morning. I'd like to know, are uh, the quarterly GST rebates, uh, are they reported as income or are they, uh, are they taxable? And also, what is a basic uh, personal exemption for old age pensioner? Okay, so first of all, your GST is tax-free, okay, so you're collecting that. Uh, there's no, it's not taxable at all. You don't include it uh, in your income. As far as uh, your OAS, essentially, there, there's no specific credit for the OAS. What you do, what you'll likely be eligible for is what's called the age amount, which is a non-refundable tax credit simply based on your age and your income. So if you're below a certain income threshold, you're going to collect this, uh, this kind of credit, uh, again, based on your age. But OAS itself does not have a, a credit tied to it. I see. There, well, a personal exemption, isn't there a, just a personal exemption in your law before you start to pay taxes? Yes, absolutely. It's set at around $14,000. 
so it's around, you know, depending on your income as well, because it could be down to 12 if you make a lot of income. So ordinarily it's 14000 at a 15% rate. So you're entitled to that, but you're also entitled to the age amount, which is an additional credit on top of the basic personal amount, just, just for the fact that you're 65 and above, as long as you're below certain income thresholds. Thank you. I'm 81, so I should qualify. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You're right in there. Thank you right. very much. John, thanks Thank for that question as well. Let's go <clears throat> to Ken in Vancouver. Ken, go ahead. Oh, hi, Jerry. Uh, I have a question. I haven't uh, filed a tax return uh, since around 2005. Should I go back and start from that year, or should I just file the most recent year? What's the best uh, way to handle that? Okay, so thank you for the question. Uh, I would go back to 2005 and start filing them uh, because your your issue is going to be that you have certain amounts that you're entitled to that you're not sure as to what they are now. So, for example, what's your RSP deduction limit? You don't know because because uh, ordinarily the CRA would provide this information to you once you file your return on your notice of assessment. So there's no way of knowing that until you file those previous years. So a lot of these amounts, and even carry-forward amounts, maybe you have losses that you're entitled to. Maybe uh, you got tuition carry-forwards from previous years when you were in university. Uh, all these things, the only way to know is if you file from that previous year all the way down. Uh, so I would recommend you, you start with 05 and file as soon as possible uh, because the, the, the issue you're going to run into is that eventually the CRA might just you know, turn the screws and essentially start seizing accounts. And that, that's what they usually do to force you to, do, to file your return is that they start seizing assets that you have, specifically your bank account. So I would recommend strongly to file it as soon as possible. All right, Ken, thank you for that. Zoltan in Vancouver. Oh, Go ahead, Zoltan. Oh, hi. Um, my question is, if you sell a property and you have capital gains on it, is it true that you can uh, uh, claim it in three different separate years to kind of break it up? Uh, not exactly. Uh, you're, you're talking maybe about the, what we call a tax reserve. Um, that's only if you haven't received the funds fully when you sold the property. So, for example, let's say you have an agreement with the uh, seller that they're going to pay you over three years, <clears throat> for example. So in that case, yes. You can spread out what we call the inclusion of the income over five years through a specific formula that the CRA has within the Income Tax Act, but uh, only, <clears throat> excuse me, only in the scenario where you didn't collect the full funds. If you collected the full funds, then the capital gains must be declared fully in the year. Now, the only other question would be, is it your principal residence or not? Uh, no, if you're selling so your personal home, then ordinarily your personal home is tax-exempt. Any gains you make on, on the sale of your personal home is tax-exempt, but you must designate it through a specific form on your tax return. All right, Zoltan, thank you for that. Robert in Burnaby. Robert, go ahead. Oh, hello there. Uh, yeah, in regards to the renter's tax credit, uh, I was wondering how it would uh, benefit you know, or affect people that uh, have an income so low that they're, they're paying little or no tax to begin with. Well, it, it benefits them in the sense of it's a, it's a five, $500 tax-free payment from the government. It's basically free money that the government is giving as long as you meet the criteria. So, I mean, the basic criteria of the housing benefit is that, like I said, your income is below those thresholds that I mentioned before. Uh, and, and at least 30% of, of your income is dedicated to your rent. And that's the key. And you have to apply for this benefit. It's not, uh, it's not automatic. You have to apply through my account with the CRA, and you have till the end of the month to do so. And essentially, it's free money. I mean, it's $500 that the government is giving you. It's free money. Why not take it if they're offering? And they'll, they'll put it in your account or send out some check by mail if you, you apply for this benefit? Usually, it'll be directly in your account. Uh, it's, since you're doing this online, the government will ask you for a direct deposit, essentially, and they'll just deposit it directly into your account. 
All right, Robert, thank you uh, for that. Let's try and get at least one or two more questions in. Doug on Vancouver Island, go ahead. Did I hear you correctly that you can purchase a pickup or a piece of equipment and write it off all in the same year? Yes, uh, it's, it's what we call the immediate expensing measure. So that starts in 2022. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's some equipment that's not eligible. Like for example, uh, um, a real estate property would not be eligible for immediate expensing. Uh, but, uh, it, but again, you have to be a business, though. Remember that you have to either be a business or incorporated, or you're a member yeah, of a I'm, I'm a limited company, so yeah, I had a pretty good year last year. My year end is May 31st, so I could potentially purchase another piece of equipment, immediate expense. Did yeah. That yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, you're incorporated, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. You, you would be allowed. This started for corporations in 2021. And as long as it's the equipment, that, as long as you fall under the categories that the government calls eligible, which, like I said, the only real exclusions to the law is real estate and intangible properties, like, you know, uh, trademarks, uh, things like that. Uh, you can expense, for example, a vehicle. You can expense other equipment as well at 100% clip in the year. You're capped, though, at $1.5 million for all of these assets combined. Okay, for, for the, what we call the accelerated uh, depreciation, which is 100%, uh, 100% depreciation rate. All right, Doug, thanks for that. Rick, if you've got a really quick question, we've got one minute left. What's your question? Yeah, either. I just uh, wanted to know, I purchased an investment property last year. I paid cash for the property, but then I took back a mortgage against the property a few months after I bought it. Is the interest on that mortgage tax deductible for me? Uh, yes, yes. As long as, as long as the purpose, it depends. Uh, remember that it's, it's, it's the purpose of why you took out the mortgage. If, if the purpose of the mortgage was to gain more income from that rental property, then yes, it is eligible. But if you took out a mortgage uh, to, to spend on something else, like you took the money of the mortgage to put it in somewhere else, then it would not be eligible. So the key is what was the purpose of the mortgage? If you pulled it to make more rental income, then yes, it is eligible. But if you pulled it, uh, like for example, renovations in the property, right? That would be one example where it would be eligible. Uh, but if you pulled it to, I don't know, fi- finance like an investment or do, do something else with the money, then it would not be eligible. All right. Thanks for those questions. And Jerry, thank you so much. I feel like we're going to have to have you back before the filing deadline. But thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank, you for, thank you for having me again and anytime. We are going to lighten things up a little bit, although sometimes even award shows can get a bit heavy. We are talking about the 95th Academy Awards and the Oscars being handed out this weekend. Big weekend, time change and the Oscars. So what shows are in the running for Best Picture and what are some of the controversies looking into the awards program this year? Joining me to talk more about this is Rick Forchek, who is a movie blogger at Rick's Picks. Hey, Rick, so great to chat with you. Great to talk with you, Jill. Always a pleasure. Well, I know this is a very busy time of year for you, getting ready for the awards show and talking about this. So let's get right into it. What are your thoughts about the pictures that have been nominated this year? Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because um, uh, the Oscars is like Las Vegas. It's just all a big gamble, and it's very unpredictable. Uh, typically, big movies that do really well at the box office don't do terribly well for the major Oscar categories. So we have Top Gun Maverick, which has just blown the doors off of all of the uh, the record setting for box office. And it is a great movie. I don't know. I don't think you could slice it any other way. And I would love to see Top Gun Maverick get best picture. But I don't think the Academy uh, would 
feel that way when you look at such things as women talking, which is a very important message movie, uh, such things as Tar, which is an excellent performance from Kate Blanchett. And, of course, uh, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, which was an exceptional film that many people didn't see unless you watched it on Netflix. So when I look at all of those, as well as Triangle of Sadness, I don't know anybody who's seen that movie, and yet here it is nominated for Best Picture. Uh, I don't know how things will turn out. I can tell you what I liked. I can tell you what I'd like to see happen. But by way of predictions, I think it's far too difficult these days because the Academy is so concerned about diversity and inclusion, so worried about the political aspects of what uh, people may say or not say when all is said and done, that uh, I think that they're a little bit gun-shy, they being the members of the Academy. And as reviewers and critics, it's hard to really say what you feel about a film because there's always the possibility that somebody would say, well, picking that one, uh, you've offended me because you ignored this other one over here. So I'm getting to the point, Joe, where I'm going to sit back and watch Jimmy Kimmel stick handle his way through the Oscar presentations, and I'm going to be surprised at every turn. Uh, for me personally, yeah, Top Gun Maverick, I think it's a great movie. I think Avatar The Way of Water is a great movie. But I also thought that Women Talking, which is directed by a Canadian, Sarah Polly, uh, really, really was an excellent film and very well done, very well performed. So hard to know how to pick great things out of those. Uh, will Elvis get a Best Picture? Will it get a Best Oscar? What will it get? I don't know, Joe. What do you think? Uh, it's uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you on that, and I will fully admit I haven't seen all of the films, uh, but uh, but I am curious, like you said, because they are so different when you look at Top Gun or Avatar as kind of these mainstream, super popular films, and then, like you said too, there are movies there that that hardly anybody has seen. They could be very good, but who knows if you haven't actually seen the films? I I am curious when we talk about if you look at a movie like Top Gun Maverick. I mean that movie is Tom Cruise. Whether you like Tom Cruise or not, there's no movie without him. Do you think it's strange that he wasn't nominated for a Best Actor? I do. I do think that's strange, and I think that's a little bit political. And uh, I, I like your, your turn of phrase, whether you like Tom Cruise or not. I'll tell you what, I like Tom Cruise. Uh, I don't like everything about Tom Cruise, but I really do like what he's accomplished as a producer and as an actor and as somebody who knows how to put a project together. And a few years ago, Jill, at uh, something called CinemaCon in Las Vegas, which is the uh, uh, conference of the motion picture theater owners of the world, uh, they have uh, performers, actors, producers coming out and doing workshops and giving speeches and uh, talking to the theater owners about what to expect in the future. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of sitting in and watching Tom Cruise talk about what it takes to raise three or four hundred million dollars to make a picture. Uh, and he talked all about the business side of the business. He didn't talk about acting. He didn't talk about the script. He talked about uh, how do you come up with investors that will put together that amount of money. And he spoke as a very, very smart and savvy business person. And I was so impressed that he was all about that. And he could still go and do most of his own stunt work fly the planes around and be a terrific actor. So back to your question, do I think it's odd he didn't get nominated? I do. I do. And I think it's because people say, well, that's just Tom Cruise. The Academy members, well, that's just Tom Cruise. Um, I, I think uh, their expectations of Tom Cruise really need to go up several notches. He's quite a remarkable person, Joe. 
All right. And you mentioned Sarah Pauly as well, a Canadian uh, director, and with her movie, that the movie she directed being nominated for Best Picture. And again, is it strange to have, I know they that you can't, there, there are more pictures than there are directors nominated, but strange again that somebody like Sarah Pauly wasn't nominated. I do think it's strange. Uh, she got the uh, director's award at the Palm Springs International Film Festival in January, uh, and she was just, she got a standing, oh, everybody loved her. And usually, best picture goes with best director at the Oscars. If you look at the history of the Oscars, go back over the last 40, 50, 60 years, more often than not, whatever is best picture also gets best director. But here we have women talking, nominated for best picture, and uh, no Sarah Pauly in sight. And that's unfortunate. I really think that that's a, that's a slight on her. Uh, she has done a remarkable job here. And anybody who's seen this movie will look at each performance, whether it's Frances McDormand or anybody else in the cast, and say, that's remarkable acting. But the problem with all of this, Jill, in my opinion, is that uh, it's a little bit like food. It's like having a competition to say, what's the best food? Well, there's fast food, and there's gourmet food, and there's health food, and there's exotic food, and there's foreign food. How do you take one of those things and say, that's the best of all? And that's the problem with the Oscars. We have so many categories, uh, but uh, there are so many pictures that are going up against one another that just don't have, uh, it's not fair. For example, uh, women talking, small movie, could have been done on stage. It's almost in a one-space set going up against Top Maverick, which has special effects, just amazing. It's impossible for me to look at that and say, which is the better picture? You really can't. You can say, this had great performances, that really touched me for this reason or that reason. So it's a challenge, and that's why I said off the top, Joe, kind of getting to the point where I'm going to sit back, I'm going to watch the TV production, I'm going to complain like everybody else when it doesn't go my way, but at the end of the day, very hard to forecast these things, and it's become a very complicated business, Joe. Oh, definitely. What about the show itself in that you mentioned, and people will know Jimmy Kimmel is the host. We can all remember the slap heard around the world in uh, in the, the yeah. previous Oscars. Uh, again, politics, certainly part of this with the, Volodymyr Zelensky asking to appear via video message. He was told, no, you, you're not going to do that. What are your thoughts on the show and the politics? Yeah, those are all good points, and, and I hope it doesn't get political. I just, I just hate it when, whether it's presenters or whether it's performers or whether it's recipients of awards, decide that I have this platform now and there are hundreds of millions of people watching. I'm going to talk about what's important to me politically, and I think that's inappropriate. I hope they will stay away from it, although with Jimmy Kimmel hosting, I mean, he can be very, very funny, very clever, but he can also be very political, and I'm sure that we're going to hear something about that slap heard around the world with uh, Will Smith. I think that's going to be the butt of somebody's jokes. And um, whether it's going to be uh, political in terms of war with Ukraine or political in terms of is Donald Trump going to run again, I just really hope we don't have to hear too much about that kind of thing. I don't think it has a place here because somebody is a great actor or an excellent director or a superb writer doesn't mean they know anything about politics. And it doesn't mean that their opinion counts more than mine or yours. And yet they have a forum that is 
huge, and taking advantage of that, I think, is inappropriate, Joe. Right. Hopefully they'll remember, uh, wasn't it Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes when he, when he started off by saying, nobody cares about your opinion about politics. Please, please. Exactly. Don't that. put that in exactly your right. Um, he was dead right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and one other question, of course, people will watch for the fashion and, and see what the stars look like. And it'll look different this year with the champagne carpet instead of a red carpet. Exactly. And that's going to be very, very interesting. It will look different. And um, it doesn't show the uh, doesn't show the uh, the the staining as much uh, with the red carpet as it does with the champagne. But we'll see what happens there. I don't know, Joe, um, what uh, fashions will occur. I don't know who's going to do something inappropriate or not. It's one of the reasons we watch. Uh, I do like the Golden Globes best of all because they drink. Mm -hmm. They have dinner and they drink and they get silly. Uh, The Oscars, not so much, but um, it is a spectacle. It's a great production. It's one of the most watched television shows worldwide. So I'll look forward to seeing all of that and look forward to being a spectator more than a reviewer or a critic. Uh, That way, I think I'll get the most out of it, Joe. All right. To you and I think a lot of people just uh, want to take on that spectator role if they are going to be watching the show. Rick, great to catch up with you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Always a pleasure, Joe. Thanks a lot.